Well, it's good to be with you again. Last week, we looked at Revelation 4, and today we will continue. It's kind of a part two. We're looking now at Revelation chapter 5. My title is The Roar of a Lion, the Redemption of a Lamb. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Though man was given dominion over all things to rule over the very creation of God, when Adam and Eve sinned, they lost that exalted position. Not only did they fall, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 that all of creation fell with them. Everything that had been created in beauty and perfection became stained with sin and fully corrupted. And since that tumultuous event that we call the fall of man, all of creation is waiting for its release from bondage to sin. And earth is in bondage not only to sin, but to Satan, who Jesus refers to as the ruler of this world. In John 14, 30, he said, I'll not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming and has nothing in me. The Apostle John said in 1 John, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And so for millennia, all of us, all of mankind, all of creation is awaiting its redemption. As we looked at Revelation 4 last week, as John recorded the vision he was invited to see of heaven itself, of the very throne room of God, we'll continue with that vision in chapter 5 and verse 1. John said, wrote, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Now to begin to understand John's vision here, we need to ask and answer a few questions they provide us with some foundational truths that the rest of the chapter will be built on. What is the scroll? And what is its significance? And why couldn't anyone be found worthy to open such a scroll? In Roman times, before paper was invented, people would record their wills on scrolls which would then be rolled up, they would be sealed, usually with seven seals, which were wax seals, that as the scroll was rolling up, that the wax would signify that no one else had, would, would, be open, would be able to open it except the one to whom the scroll was addressed to. And rather than the scroll being rolled up and sealed with seven seals on the outside, as the scroll was being rolled up, it would be, uh, it would be, it would have a different a wax seal in a different place. Robert Thomas, a commentator, a professor at Master Seminary, writes this. He says, This kind of contract was known all over the Middle East in ancient times, 
and was used by the Romans from the time of Nero on. All kinds of transactions were consummated this way, including marriage contracts, rental and lease agreements, and release of slaves. Support comes also from Hebrew practices. The Hebrew document most closely resembling this scroll was a title deed, which was folded and signed, requiring at least three witnesses. A portion of text would be written and then sealed with a different witness, signing at each sealing, and a larger number of witnesses meant that more importance was assigned to the document. Now, we can't be sure, but one interpretation is that the scroll held in the hand of God on the throne was some kind of deed or title deed, perhaps the title deed of all the earth and all of creation, since in chapter 4, God had been worshipped as the creator. Now, when we come to chapter 6, which we won't do today, we'll leave that to, to Clint at another time, we'll see the scroll begin to unroll as each seal is broken and the end of, age, the, end of the age begins to draw rapidly to a close. But as we return to verse 2, John hears the voice of a strong angel proclaiming, Who is worthy to open the book and break its seals? And then we learn in verse 3, the question is asked in such a way that every soul, every soul in heaven, every soul on earth, and even it says under the earth, perhaps this includes the souls of the dead. So when we read narratives like this, we just kind of imagine things go right from one verse to the next, and we, we don't even take time to consider, huh, was, this, did this, was there a long interlude here between verse 3 and verse 4? Because this question goes, is boomed throughout all of creation. If this included the souls of the dead, which I think it did because it says and under the earth, imagine every conqueror who ever lusted for power, who loved to exercise dominion over people, heard that. Heard that question, who is worthy to take the scroll? The mighty Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, who prided himself on his achievements, heard he wasn't able to take the scroll. Or there was Alexander the Great, who at the age of 32 conquered much of the occupied world, but died a year later. He wasn't worthy. Charlemagne, Napoleon, Hitler, Marx, Lenin, Stalin, Khrushchev, Saddam Hussein, all lie dormant awaiting their future judgment and they hear the invitation, and they are paralyzed. They're not able to arise, to take this title deed of all the earth. No one is worthy. And that leads me to my first point for those of you who might be note takers. Fully grasp the unworthiness of man to rule and to reign. Hold up on reading the rest of the quote at this point. We'll get to that. Fully grasp the unworthiness of man to rule and to reign. And, and that includes even to rule our own lives, even to reign over our own lives. We, we recognize, we, we, we make a mess of things. We need a savior. And no one responds to this invitation. And John waits and he waits and he waits as that voice reaches into every town on planet Earth, to every city, to every hamlet, to every home, scattered, the booming voice mysteriously informing 
the soul of every man and woman and child who has ever lived, including Adam, and no one stirs. And John waits and waits and waits until he realizes no one is up to the task. Because all of us have sinned. All of us are in Adam. All of us have lost the glory that our ancestor Adam had, who had been created in sinless perfection. Not only is man unworthy and unable to rule and reign over the dominion of creation, he's unable to even rule and reign over his own life. And in verse 4 says, John began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look into it. And so another question begs to be answered. Why does John weep? And the Greek word here is not used for the tear that might run down the cheek, but to, to sob uncontrollably, to weep and to weep. That loud, uncontrollable sobbing. John tells us it was connected with his waiting for someone worthy to come and take the scroll. W.A. Criswell says that these represent the tears of all God's people through all the centuries. Those tears of the Apostle John are the tears of Adam and Eve driven out of the Garden of Eden as they bowed over the first grave, as they watered the dust of the ground with their tears over the silent still form of their son Ebal. Those are the tears of the children of Israel in bondage as they cried unto God in their affliction and slavery. They are the tears of God's elect through the centuries as they cried unto heaven. They're the sobs and the tears that have been wrung from the heart and soul of God's people as they looked on their silent dead, as they stand beside their open graves, as they experience the trials and sufferings of life, heartaches and disappointments indescribable. Such is the curse that sin has laid on God's beautiful creation. And this is the damnation of the hand of him who holds it that usurper, that interloper, that intruder, that alien, that stranger, that dragon, that serpent, that Satan devil. And John wept audibly for the failure to find a redeemer because it meant that this earth and its curse are consigned forever to death. It meant that death and sin and damnation and hell should reign forever and ever and the sovereignty of God's earth should remain forever in the hands of Satan. And one of the elders said, verse 5, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Our next point, turn your affections toward the worthy one. Turn your affections away from the world, away from our idols, toward the worthy one. John's told to stop weeping. I've been married 51 years. I learned early in my marriage, uh, it's not real wise for husbands to tell their wives, stop crying, <laughs> or to attempt to analyze those tears. We've, many of us have learned our lessons, hopefully. It's not very sensitive, not very loving. Remember those terrible words as a kid, stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about? You ever had that one used on you? The elder does, or does tell John to stop weeping. That may have reminded John a few other times when he heard his Lord to tell people to stop weeping. One was a widow who had just lost her son at his funeral as the casket was being carried. 
and the other were the parents of a 12-year-old little girl. In both cases, Jesus told them to stop weeping because he was about to remove the source of their weeping. He raised both of them from the dead. John is told to stop weeping because the worthy one was about to take the scroll. He hears two names used really from the Old Testament of the coming Messiah. One is the Lion of Judah, you might remember from Genesis 49, as the patriarch Jacob was prophesying about each of his sons. And he envisioned Judah as being the strongest of the tribes and then prophesied by God's Spirit that one would come from Judah's lineage who would rule forever. And we know that Jesus Christ came from the tribe of Judah He also heard the elder proclaim that the one coming to take the scroll was from the root of David. That also was a prophecy given by Isaiah in chapter 11, verse 1, prophesying the Messiah would be of the lineage of David as well, the root of David. And John looks and he fully expects to see a lion, a majestic conquering lion. I have a quote from Leon Morris, who was a commentator. When earthbound men want symbols of power, they conjure up mighty beasts and birds of prey. Russia elevates the bear, Britain the lion, France the tiger, the United States the eagle, all of them ravenous. Expecting to see a roaring lion, John looks and sees a lamb. Verse 6, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. The lamb. There are different Greek words for lamb. This one is not the regular full-grown lamb, but a pet lamb. On Passover, you see, every Jewish family was told to select a lamb for the upcoming sacrifice. It was to be a spotless lamb. But Exodus also tells us that it was to be taken out of the flock and brought close to the family, where for four days it would, be, it would live close to the family. It would be there so the children of the family would be able to pet the lamb, to be endeared to the lamb, to bond with that lamb. Why? Why? Why slaughter a pet lamb after it snuggled with the children so the children and their parents would understand the seriousness of sin? They would understand the truth of substitution, which, of course, only the Lord Jesus would fill when he went to the cross to pay for our sins. Isaiah says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Brothers and sisters, turn your affections toward the worthy one. It should have been us that died for our sins. Instead, it was the substitution It was Jesus Christ who took the wrath of God the Father upon himself for us. And John tells us that the lamb did not remain a bloody heap on the ground. He notices he's standing, still bearing the wounds of his sacrificial death. He had overcome the cross. 
He had overcome the death in his resurrection. And now he had seven horns. And in the Old Testament, the horn is a symbol of strength or power. Even his beasts with horns used them to overcome their enemies in battle. This lamb had seven horns, indicating the fullness of Christ's power. The Lord Jesus, in his first coming, came as a lamb. He was gentle. He was tender. He fulfilled the prophecies of the suffering servant in Isaiah who wrote of him, he will not quarrel, he will not cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out, until he leads to justice and victory. And in his name the nations will hope. Many of the Israelites expected their Messiah would come as a lion. They wrongly deduced that in his power he would overcome the Romans and would establish his kingdom on earth. Such was the messianic hope. And they were correct in one sense. He will return as the Lion of Judah. He will overcome all of his enemies. Donald Gray Barnhouse, in his commentary in the book of Revelation, says, if I can find it, there were four things out of place in the universe. The church is out of place. She ought to be in heaven. Israel is out of place. She should be in the land that has been sworn to her and possess every part of it. The devil is out of place. He ought to be in the lake of fire, but he's still roaming free. And Christ is out of place. He should be through with intercession and seated on his throne, reigning instead of upon his father's throne, interceding. And John begins to see this solidify in his vision of the lamb as he takes the scroll from the father and he notices The result in verse 8, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They're taking delight in worshiping the worthy one. And that leads us to our third point as well. Take delight in worshiping the worthy one. Hold up on reading the rest of that quote now. Remember last week we looked at the first two hymns in chapter 4. If we look back at verse 8, the four living creatures, remember the first hymn. Just the four living creatures were singing, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And then later there was a second hymn sung by the 24 elders in verse 11. Worthy are you, O our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now there's a reminder that all of the prophecies fulfilled in Jesus, there's a reminder of all the prayers of the saints through the ages for God's kingdom to come which are one of the things that we even prayed for this morning. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The bowls of incense are reminders of all of the prayers that have ever come before the throne of God as incense. And all of the kingdom is about to break into its dawning. And now there's a third hymn that breaks forth. It's the 24 elders and the four living creatures singing together. Verse 9, they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Jesus is worthy. As we've seen in chapter 4, that God the Father is worthy to be worshipped. That was the song of creation. Now we have a song of redemption. The heavens are filled with the truth that took nothing less than the shed blood of Jesus Christ to purchase us, to redeem us. And notice that the redemption is not about us, that we're not merely the objects of redemption. It says that we were purchased for God. Did you notice that? We are, have been ransomed people for God, for His glory. We're saved for Him and for His glory. And notice the we is not exclusive. It's not just the Israelites, but also the Gentiles. It's not just our race, but all races. It's not just our nation, but all nations. It's not just our language, but all languages. I'm reminded of John Piper's quote, Missions exists because worship doesn't. And we saw pictures of some of the tribal peoples that are hearing the gospel and receiving the gospel for the first time, worshiping in their tongue. This is part of God's plan to reach every people group. Not only are we saved and purchased for him, we're saved and purchased to be part of a kingdom. We, 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 we experience that now in corporate worship. We don't, we don't just worship at home in our living room. That's important. Individual worship, family worship. But this is, this is corporate worship. Brothers and sisters worshiping together. We're part of a kingdom that, that doesn't wait until heaven to begin. It's already begun. Eternal life has already begun because we know Jesus Christ. And he has given us eternal life. And then we come to the fourth hymn, verses 11 and 12. And then I looked, John says, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the, the, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands upon thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Now the angels join in. Some versions read 10,000 times 10,000. Now, don't get your calculators out because that won't be, it won't be helpful. Because in the Greek, back in John's day, in the Greek, 10,000 was the largest number that they had a word for. And if someone wanted to express something innumerable, he would say 10,000. Or something really innumerable, he'd say 10,000 times 10,000. And so we have the word myriad to represent that. It's innumerable. Those of you who love numbers and accounting, don't worry. You're, you're not going to be in heaven trying to count all the angels. You'll, you'll give up after a couple centuries. Myriads upon myriads. Imagine the volume, the crescendo of those voices singing. I can't even imagine. I, just, I can't wait. And the song service isn't even over yet. Because then there's a fifth hymn. All of the angels. And then everyone is saying with a loud voice. Oh, I'm sorry. Verse 13. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. 
and all that's in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Who's invited to join in both to the praises to the Father as creator and the, to the Son as redeemer? Everyone, every part of creation, including every inanimate thing, every animal, every blade of grass, every tree, every star, every sun, the moon. Can you imagine the volume? Now, this picture isn't one that furthers the heresy of universalism, which says at the end everyone will be saved. It reminds us, no, it reminds us from Isaiah and also from Philippians 2 that the time will come when every knee will be forced to bow and every tongue forced to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Even those without faith are forced to say it because Jesus Christ is Savior. It will be spoken in utter shame and in utter fear as they recognize, I did not bow the knee while I was alive. Some of you yet have not bowed your heart to Jesus Christ. And so I plead with you, let today be that day that you will put your faith in the living God, in the Savior who came to die for your sins on the cross. Don't leave the room without talking to Pastor Clint or myself or one of the other leaders of the church. This is John's vision. He wrote down for us. I'm so thankful we have this book of Revelation. Don't let the difficulty of some of the interpretation keep you from reading this book. It's one of the only places where uh, there's blessing promised for those who read these words. Blessing. This is probably the same vision that Daniel received that he wrote about in chapter 7. If we can find it here. Oh, there it is. It was there. He's, Daniel seven thirteen. Daniel writes, I kept looking in the night visions and behold... With the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So brothers and sisters, I challenge you, First of all, fully grasp the unworthiness of man to rule and to reign. Don't put your faith in yourself. Don't put it in your government or in your president or in your Congress. It cannot save you and it cannot deliver you. Next, I want to ask, are, are your affections turned toward the worthy one? It is a fallen world filled with pain, but this is not our inheritance. This is not where we place our hope not to fix it on this earth or what it can offer us. Turn your affections to him. Finally, take delight in worshiping the worthy one. Worship him when you awaken in the morning, when you go to bed at night. Worship him as you drive and as you work. And we're reminded from these five hymns, our worship isn't to be reserved for simply ourselves, but to be joined in with others. And so in closing, as the worship band comes up to lead us in another song, I'm going to ask you to rise and I'd like us to read together in worship from Psalm 150. And as we think about the crescendo that we saw in Revelation chapter 5, can we 
raise our voices a little bit and uh, praise the Lord as we see this invitation in Psalm 150 for all of creation to praise him. Read with me now. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty expanse. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with harp and lyre. Praise him with timbrel and dancing. Praise him with stringed instruments and pipe. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. 